Welcome to this week's edition of Ocean Allison, where I bring you the best in ocean science, education, and conservation through conversations with people who are creating positive change for the ocean. This week's podcast episode is brought to you by Truly Wetsuits. With an amazing selection of durable, fleece-lined, and colorful wetsuits, if you're a woman of the water like me, Truly has a wetsuit to help you stay warm, look great, and feel truly yourself. Love yourself, love the ocean, love Truly Wetsuits. Visit trulywetsuits.com, that's T-R-U-L-I, wetsuits.com, to learn more about this inspiring brand and to order yours today. And now to this week's podcast episode. This week's Ocean Advocate is Katie Pomerantz. Katie is the co-founder and president of the nonprofit Debris Free Oceans with a background in coastal and environmental law dedicated to eradicating marine debris. Hi, Katie. Welcome to the show. Hi, Allison. Thanks for having me. Yeah, very excited to have you on the show today and share your story with listeners because it's a super inspiring and incredible story that you've managed to accumulate through your years so far. To give our listeners a little bit of background, Katie and I, we kind of connected through social media, mostly on Instagram over the last few years, and we're just kind of supporting each other there and interested in what each other was doing. And then we actually had the opportunity to meet in person this summer in Miami, where Katie lives. And I came down to Miami to participate in an event that her nonprofit, Debris Free Oceans, was putting on a dive cleanup and also a coral planting trip out to Biscayne Bay National Park. She was collaborating with Rescue of Reef, hence the coral planting. They go out and plant corals all over the reef to try to help it grow and be healthy. And so Debris Free Oceans goes out there and also does a nice dive cleanup and collects the trash and debris that are that's on the reef that's obviously not supposed to be there. So um, I came down for that event and unfortunately we had some bad weather and the seas were too rough for us to go out on the dive boat that day. But um, we actually ended up having a super fun day. Uh, we went surfing in South Beach and I got to meet some other people that are part of the Debris Free Oceans team like Tracy and Jeremy and uh, we just had a lot of fun hanging out in Miami for the day enjoying the ocean. So I wanted to have Katie on the show today to share her story with you guys and um, continue the conversation for us as well, because we have a lot in common. We like to talk. Um, so I want to start out by talking about Debris Free Oceans. And for listeners, Debris Free Oceans is all about inspiring local communities to responsibly manage the plastic that goes through their life kind of starting this global initiative to, like I said, eradicate marine debris, clean up the oceans, clean up the beaches, clean up our coral reefs and all that kind of stuff. So obviously really great mission that Debris Free Oceans has. Um, I want to touch on a few of the kind of pillars of Debris Free Oceans, what you guys try to do. Um, I want to first ask you about the cleanups that you guys do. So obviously you do some dive cleanups, like I mentioned, and I know you do some other types of cleanups as well. Can you talk, Katie, a little bit about the cleanups and kind of what they're all about for Debris Free Oceans? Yeah, so we love to make 
cleanups a little bit more fun and exciting for people than your average beach cleanup. Not to say that those aren't fun and exciting, um, but our main goal is to engage those people that might not already be engaged. So like you mentioned, we do the scuba cleanups. Um, and then we also have a program running right now where we go into Biscayne National Park and we bring out groups of about 12 people onto one of the park boats and we travel nine nautical miles offshore. We go to one of the islands there, uh, usually Elliott Key. We wade through the water, get onto the island, and we pick up about usually 500 pounds of trash. These are islands that are completely uninhabited and people don't go and party on them or use them. But we actually, being in Miami-Dade County, are three miles away from the Gulf Stream. So we get trash from all over the world dumping inside Biscayne National Park. So we like to highlight that and kind of show people that it's not just people necessarily littering that's creating this problem. It's an everyday consuming too much single-use plastics problem, and those plastics have a way of entering our waterways, whether they fall off the back of a garbage truck or they get kicked into a storm drain system, and they move through the entire global ecosystem. But so we do that, and then afterward, we go out into this area that's a marine reserve in Biscayne National Park, and we do some snorkeling, so people also get to get that connection to nature and to the place that they're in uh, that they ordinarily don't get to experience, so that there's kind of that, I love this place, and that's why I want to take care of it, feeling that comes out from the cleanup. So that's one of our cleanups that we do rather regularly. And we have another kind of fun version of a beach cleanup, uh, which we call the Keg and Clean. And we're going to have one in October, actually, for Oktoberfest. But basically, if people bring their own cup to the beach and they help us clean the beach, then we have a sponsored keg, usually from Winwood Brewing Co., to fill up people's cups while they're there so they can enjoy some beer, get to know some really awesome, ocean-loving people, um, and just kind of promote, again, that idea that you can enjoy these beaches and these o and our ocean, but you can do it responsibly and you can actually give back because... Here in Miami, we have a large, large party culture. We have thousands of people that go out on their boats and litter different sandbars. And so we also like to kind of teach that culture that you can actually go out and party and have a good time, but leave the place better than you found it. Yeah, so I love the keg and clean idea, and I definitely want to try to attend one of those coming up here in the near future. Um, going along with that, kind of these zero waste events where they're fun and you're partying, but you're also, like you said, not producing waste and you're leaving the place cleaner and better. Another event that you guys put on every year that I really love and think is such a great idea is your eco fashion show. And you just had it recently. Can you talk about the eco fashion show, what it is, and again, kind of how it's an event that inspires people to be less wasteful in their own lives. 
So we actually, the Eco Fashion Show, was. this was the second year we did it since we are now in our second year of operation, and we're making it an annual event. And the concept essentially is teaching people about different brands that are out there that are committed to making a difference in our environment, kind of showing people that if you just look outside the box a little bit, you might find an alternative to something that you ordinarily purchase or use, but that actually gives back. So for example, I think you had Boreo on one of your podcasts recently. We had at our eco fashion show Boreo sunglasses, which are made out of fishing gear that is discarded in the ocean. They recycle it in Chile and make it into sunglasses and skateboard decks. We also had a company called Riz Board Shorts from England that actually has completely closed the life cycle of their board short manufacturing. So they have a program called Bottles to Board Shorts. They go and collect bottles from beaches. They repurpose those into thread to create their board shorts. And then their board shorts at the end of their life cycle are recyclable. So you can send them back to the headquarters and they'll recycle them for you and create new board shorts. So we use fashion as a mechanism to demonstrate the whole process and idea of the life cycle of plastics and how right now we look at resources linearly and we have two false assumptions. The first being that there's unlimited resources that we can grab from and the second being that we have unlimited disposal capacity. And that's kind of been these assumptions we've been living on since roughly the 60s when the plastic boom really started to come to light. And so this kind of highlights how we have to move toward a more cyclical way of looking at resources and that looking at trash like these bottles on beaches as actually another resource that can be created into something new. So the event is very happy and positive. We had music and artists. We had an art installation that people could be a part of while they were there um, that was a giant chalkboard, and it said, what do the oceans mean to you? So right when you came in, you kind of made that intention and that dedication. So you already are thinking of the oceans, and then throughout the event, you can learn about all these amazing brands and about marine debris, but it's in a fun atmosphere where people that may otherwise be intimidated by environmental issues may feel welcomed and want to become a part of it. I think that's really so genius that you're incorporating or you're creating an environment for people to have fun and feel comfortable and then they're not intimidated by the environmental issues that you're presenting. So another kind of branch of Debris Free Oceans that I want to touch on is the education component. And you guys do a number of in-classroom and out-of-classroom education programs uh, with middle and high school students. Can you talk about those programs and the importance of education to Debris Free Oceans? Yes. So those programs, we typically partner with a different school in the area, and we'll go in and we'll give a talk about marine debris. And the idea is to give them a foundation and understanding of plastics and the life cycle of plastics, where they come from, how much they're using. For example, we give them a trash tracker. And before the class, they can mark off, oh, I've thrown away X, Y, and Z today. And then after the class, maybe have them do that 
same trash tracker and see if there's some type of difference that the in-class presentation could change their perspective on what they're using. And then we like to bring those students out into that offshore cleanup program that I was talking about earlier, where we go into Biscayne National Park and do some snorkeling, because by learning about it in the classroom, kind of as a theoretical exercise and then getting out of the classroom and seeing it firsthand and making that connection that, hey, that plastic fork I used earlier is now on this beautiful uninhabited island really drives the message home and I think makes lasting change for for young people as they develop and choose what career paths they want to go into and as they go into college and later in their professional careers can keep that experience in mind and know that when they're developing their own new concepts and ideas, keeping that concept of closing the loop to the life cycle of plastics uh, with them as they move forward. Yeah, that's awesome. And I'm sure that all the kids that you guys interact with are super inspired to, you know, whether it's make changes in their daily life or pursue some career path they never thought of. Definitely cool that you guys are educating young people. Another pillar of Debris Free Oceans is law and policy. So I mentioned in the intro that you have a background in coastal and environmental law. And I want to kind of backtrack a little bit and talk about that background that you have, because to me, law and policy is so foreign for the most part. And I think it's super interesting that you have a background in that and we've somehow kind of found ourselves in a similar field, you know? So I think it's it's really cool to share your law background with and kind of that story with listeners. So you got your undergraduate degree at University of Miami in ecosystem science, and then you went on to University of Florida to get a degree in environmental law. What motivated you to go to law school having, you know, had this science background in undergrad, take the plunge and get a law degree? I remember actually taking a few courses and learning more about the legal system and how that can really shape morals of a community and whether it's at the city level, the state level or the federal level and also thinking about how I believe that my skill set that I could bring to the environmental table, so to speak, was my ability to convey messages. Science was always very interesting to me, and I loved learning about it, but I had always been involved in environmental clubs where I was putting on speaking engagements so that more and more people could learn about what science was going on and the environmental issues. And I felt I could better serve the global community to help our oceans as an environmental advocate. And a way that I thought I could do that best was by going to law school and learning the laws and the policies regarding our oceans and using my science background as a way to direct those laws and policies and hopefully a way that uh, helps protect our oceans. And so while you're in law school at University of Florida, you actually received the 2013 Guy Harvey Scholarship in kind of accordance with Florida Sea Grant, which is a super prestigious scholarship. It's 
very difficult to get from my understanding. So awesome that you got it. Can you talk about the work that you did in law school kind of under that scholarship? Yeah. So when I was at law school, I was in something called the conservation clinic. Basically, I received credits for doing hands-on, working on ha- on legal issues. Um, my client was Ocean Crest Alliance, the Hamian nonprofit, and their focus was setting up a marine protected area in Long Island, Bahamas, because they had seen a severe decline in their fisheries due to foreign poaching within their waters and due to just over-harvesting of their fisheries. So... We had developed for them the plan to implement a marine protected area, and it involved hosting community meetings, meeting with all of the fishermen of the island, getting them on board, getting their input to create maps where they thought there should be no-take areas, where they thought fishing should remain open, where different spawning aggregation areas were so that those areas should be under more protection. And so the next step to creating that plan for them was executing on it. So we applied to the Guy Harvey Ocean Foundation, which granted us the funding to go down to Long Island, Bahamas. So I went down with a team of about five people, and we hosted three meetings, one in the north end of the island, one in the center of the island, and one in the south of the island. And the island is only about a population of 4,000. So we were able, within those three meetings, to essentially meet with every fisherman on the island um, and get their input on where all these different areas should be. So we essentially helped them and worked with the Bahamian government in order to craft these plans and move forward with the marine protected area. That's awesome. And is that marine protected area still in existence today? The marine protected area has been found by Sylvia Earle with her group, Mission Blue. She is now creating it into a hope spot. I'm actually uncertain at this time if that has come into play, but she now is involved with her organization in completing the marine protected area process that we started. So it sounds like it's in good hands. Yes, I would trust her. (laughs) Yeah, me too. Well, that's awesome. And so in kind of continuing on your journey in the law and policy field, You also had the opportunity to be a legal intern with Surfrider, I believe just after you graduated. Is that right? Yeah, it was actually my last semester in law school. It had always been my dream to work with the Surfrider Foundation. So I actually strategically planned my course load so that my last semester, all I had left was enough credits that I would need to go get an internship. So I went ahead and moved out to San Clemente, California my last semester and worked in the headquarters as their legal intern on public access issues, on protecting access to coastlines and other water quality issues. And it was an incredible experience to work with such a well-run and amazing, amazing group of people. And so I also saw that you, before that, even had the opportunity to work again as a legal intern with the Audubon Societies. You have had experience working with these two 
really large, really well-known environmental nonprofits as part of their legal team. I guess I'm wondering, what is that like? What was it like being on the inside of these really large nonprofits that are really creating impactful change? Well, they were very different experiences. So with Surfrider Foundation, they had a lot more litigation type work. So I was working more on how can we best craft a legal strategy to file a lawsuit against polluters or the government as they're denying access to surfers to the beach. Um, And with Audubon, Florida, that was more akin to a lobbying position. So I would go to meetings at the South Florida Water Management District where In Florida, we actually have five different water management districts broken up by watershed. And so South Florida Water Management District controls the flows from Lake Okeechobee as they go through the Everglades and down through South Florida. There's always been a lot of controversy about how much fertilizer runoff is going into the lake and then into the Everglades and how much water they're releasing from the lake because if they don't release enough, there's too much saltwater intrusion. If they release too much, then there's often algal blooms that end up causing fish kills and other issues. So with Audubon, Florida, I was more of an advocate for how much water should be released and when, working with public officials on a more day-to-day basis rather than working on the lawsuit side. So it was nice because I got to experience kind of a well-rounded view of how different ways I could use my law, law degree, whether it was through litigation or through some type of policy and advocacy. Yeah, that's really cool. It sounds like you kind of got the best of both worlds working for Surfrider and Audubon doing those those different things. So another thing that I wanted to bring up is that after graduating from law school, you received the NOAA Coastal Management Fellowship. And this is a really prestigious fellowship to get. Can you share with listeners your experience getting that fellowship and kind of what happened with that whole situation? Yes. So it it was a very competitive process. Six people were chosen from all over the nation to receive the NOAA Coastal Management Fellowship, and they were each placed in different state environmental agencies around the nation. And you were able to choose your agency. And as a South Florida native, I chose Florida because I want to bring sustainability and sustainable principles to Florida. So I was placed at the Florida Department of Environmental Protection. And this was about two years ago. And I remember quite shortly after I got there, I was directed by the governor, Rick Scott of Florida, to not say climate change or global warming or sea level rise to the public. And I had a really hard time taking that in, uh, knowing that I was working for the agency that was supposed to be protecting the environment and helping the public deal with these types of issues, especially being from Miami, where sea level rise is a very present and very real issue right now, to not be able to go out and talk about it and try to craft solutions for it. Um, I just kind of got 
caught between whether I wanted to stay within this prestigious fellowship or pursue avenues that would allow me to advocate and do what I intended to do upon graduating law school. So I, I actually left the fellowship only after six months because I was actually doing Debris Free Oceans at the same time. And there was conflicts when you have a nonprofit that you want to advocate for and you're working for the government. You have to be careful on, on what you're saying and what you're doing. So it actually was it was a blast because I had to focus more on Debris Free Oceans and I didn't have to be concerned about the messaging that I was conveying to the public and I could give them the truth, so to speak. Yeah. And I'm sure that that was a really difficult situation to be in and a difficult decision to make. But I think it's inspiring that you, you went with your passion, you went with what you truly believe in. And I think that focusing more on debris free oceans and the other initiatives that you focused on since then has definitely shown that you, you chose a good path and you've been able to do what you want and say what you want and and speak the truth, like you said. So I also want to ask you about, you mentioned sea level rise in talking about Miami and how that is a serious and pressing issue that is currently happening. You are a board member on the Marine and Waterfront Protection Authority in Miami Beach. And I know that a big issue that you guys deal with or talk about is obviously sea level rise. Can you talk about your role as a board member with the Waterfront Protection Authority and also what's happening in Miami with trying to combat and prevent sea level rise right now? So my role with the authority is to essentially advise the commissioners who make the local decisions for the city of Miami Beach on issues related to waterfront protection. So we deal with things like whether to erect seawalls, all kinds of issues. But specifically relating to sea level rise, we mostly deal with seawall issues, which the city of Miami Beach, I actually love being a part of that community and living here. I actually I live on the beach as well because it's a very progressive community and we are pioneering the concept of using living shorelines as seawalls. So when we're implementing these new seawalls, we are making sure to both plant and keep existing mangroves in the area because we're incorporating the mangroves as a form of flood barrier in and of themselves. So a lot of our new developments with seawalls also incorporate mangrove infrastructure. In terms of what the city's doing with sea level rise, We've installed pumps all over the city that essentially when the high tides come in, we can pump the water out so that it doesn't flood in. Um, We've also raised our roads about three feet and we're continuing to raise Miami. So we're actually building the city up. We are putting more dirt and gravel here so that there is more area available for the sea to rise. So we are taking it very seriously. We have a lot of money going into these projects and developments. And just a personal story from living in my condo building on the beach, when we have a high tide event, 
I can't use the garage floor of my building. I remember going down to the garage floor earlier this year and I thought for a second, oh my gosh, I must be sinking. I'm on the Titanic because there was just water flooding into the elevator shaft and going down the elevator. So I could only exit from the building from the story above. So it's definitely a very real issue we're dealing with, but the city is taking it very seriously. And we have a lot of initiatives moving forward to, to help us adapt to the issue. Wow. Well, that sounds really intense, that experience in your apartment (laughs) building. But yeah, I think it's great that you brought it up because it truly is an issue right now. And that's great to hear that you are someone that's advising others on what can be done about it. That definitely makes me feel better about the future of Miami and how it's going to fare in the face of sea level rise and climate change. For listeners, if you guys have been inspired by what Katie is doing and has done in terms of running her nonprofit Debris Free Oceans and her background and current work as well in the law and policy arena. When I post this podcast episode, I will be linking to debrisfreeoceans.org so you guys can check them out, check out their latest events and see what other things they're up to. And I'll also link to their Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram accounts so you guys can give them a follow, give them a like, and keep up with what they're doing. And Katie, I want to thank you for all the positive change that you're creating for the ocean, combining your love of ocean science and fun and uh, sustainability and with your background in law and policy. It's really, really great to have someone like you on the front lines caring about the ocean. And I also want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for being an advocate for the ocean and getting all of these wonderful messages out there to the public. You just heard Katie Pomerantz, co-founder and president of Debris Free Oceans with a background in coastal and environmental law. To learn more about the topics discussed in this podcast, visit my website at allisonrandolph.com. And don't forget to visit trulywetsuits.com, that's T-R-U-L-I wetsuits.com, to find an amazing selection of wetsuits for the woman ocean adventurer. Truly wetsuits, truly sexy you. And to keep the podcast coming, contribute a dollar or more per episode by visiting patreon.com slash oceanallison today. And tune into next week's episode to hear another conversation between me and someone creating positive change for the ocean.